What's up, Harlan? How we doing? Some of you are um, just dreading today. You don't know who's going to show up at your house, and already there's too many interruptions in your life, and so that's awesome. Um, where's Ted is a great question. Who really knows? Who can control Ted? No one can control Ted. Hey, open your Bibles to uh, Nehemiah chapter 6. If you got them, Nehemiah chapter 6, where I want to be today. As you're flipping there, uh, it's in the Old Testament, kind of towards the, the, the beginning. Uh, I just want to just start by saying something um, that's pretty, uh, you know, normal for us. Uh, uh, the first word that my kids ever learned uh, growing up was a word that has a tremendous amount of power. It is the word... No, no. Okay, so if you ever had a baby, uh, this is kind of like the whole entire existence up until a toddler. You find out that the only weapon you have against the big people in the world is this face and this word no. Right? Anybody raising toddlers right now? Anybody in it with it? Like you're like, yeah, I got that right. Oh, God bless you for just being alive today. Thank you. That's great. Just see, yes, keep going. Um, uh, you know, it's the easiest word for us at the beginning of our lives, but then we um, go into adolescence. Right, uh, you think back to some of your middle school days with some of your friends, and um, there was this one friend who always had an idea uh, that kind of sounded a little like not wise, and and you found yourself where no used to roll off the tip of your tongue. You were kind of like afraid to say no, right? Kind of like when you get a group text four minutes before the host spot, and someone says, "Hey, I think I'm going to crash Craig's announcement time. What do you guys think?" And no one in the group chat says no. And so you just end up going with it, right? I mean, like, these are the moments that just become legendary for your kids that, like, you should have said no. Someone should have said no. But you didn't want to sound like this person. Some of you remember this. A 50-something, you remember this, right? This is the, the, what you avoided back in the 80s. Um, we love her. But, like, this was the, when you think of no, this is what you think of, right? Okay, this is haunting my childhood. Okay, that's fine. Uh, you get to, into adulthood, and uh, you, you get to your job or your family, and isn't it true that like no is a word that slips by your vocabulary? No, no is a word that just doesn't carry with it the same fluency as it used to because you don't want to be seen as a stumbling block or a roadblock or a bottleneck. And oftentimes the people who say no a lot remind you of this guy, right? I mean, this is back to the, 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 day, the glory days of TV, uh, right? Like, like only one person in the world can say no that many times, right? No is a word that we find it's the hardest to say as an adult. And here's what I found out. It's hard, it's hard for us to say no to other people, but isn't it true? It's hardest for me to say no to me. I know I turned that pretty quick, but that's true, right? I mean, whether it's sticking to a diet or, you know, impulsive spending, or not saying the thing that I shouldn't say. No is a hard word. And I think failure to say the word no in life is one of the greatest mistakes that you and I could even make. I think almost every decision that you've made that has led you to some sort of heartache had an opportunity back further on in your decision-making process where you could have said and should have said no. Uh, in fact, if you've ever been around an organization or um, a governmental job or even a church where there was an integrity crisis, someone failed to say no when they should have said no. And we don't say no for no reason. The, the word no is actually a space-making word. The word no, it makes space for something greater, something better. It makes space in our lives for a yes. 
If, if you need some space in your life, whether it's a budget or relationships or uh, your time, you're going to need a no to a lot of other things to get that space. As you uh, turn the corner here to Nehemiah chapter 6, we, we've been um, seeing the life of Nehemiah is a, is a life of decisions and a life of waiting, a life of prayer and a life of activating. But it's also what we're going to find today, a life that says no to things that crowd out better things. Nehemiah lived 400 years before Jesus and he found himself leading a construction project to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Uh, he'd been praying and organizing and preparing and planning and helping people put back the walls, the security system to Jerusalem, this two and a half mile, two mile uh, wall that, that he had divided up the work and, and had faced all this opposition from people outside the, the city and then faced all these problems from within the city. And, and, and he's really close to getting this wall finished. Uh, Brad slash Ted uh, in, in midweek, which is this thing that happens uh, Wednesday evenings at 6.30, which is this incredible way for us to go deeper. But in midweek, he's been making the same joke for the past five weeks. He's been saying, I don't know if the wall gets built, you guys. It's like the dumbest Bible joke that we have. But, um, <laughs> but today we get to see if the wall gets finished. And Nehemiah is so close to the finish line. And all he has to do actually is tell us that, that he's got to just hang the gates, right? Hang the gates. Now, if you're a Jacobson, this is where you quit. You're like, I basically did the job. Some of you know that I ripped floors out of my house when I moved into Overland Park not too long ago. And um, just this past weekend, I finally got around to putting the trim up. It's been three months my poor wife has lived in our house without trim. But it's been mostly done. She has a floor to walk on. What else do you want from me, right? <laughs> so Nehemiah's at that point. You know, that point where some of us, like, the, there's 2% left in the job and, you know, you just let it go for all. And, and here's at the point where, where it's almost done. And, and here, look, at verse, look at verse 2 with me. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 2. Y'all ready? Jump in with me today, Nehemiah 6, 2. Nehemiah's got a couple no's that he needs to say, and we're going to see how it works out for him. It says, Sambalot and Geshem, who um, nobody's going for Sambalot and Geshem this year's Halloween, which is, I think, is a real missed opportunity. It's a great couple's costume if you'd like to uh, figure out what they look like. Um, Sambalot and Geshem, uh, this sort of, this, this part of this unholy trinity thus far, they say to Nehemiah, they sent him a message. So a courier took a message up to Nehemiah, and, and here's what the message said. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plains of Ono. I'm so glad you guys see it. Because <laughs> it took me like four days to realize it was there. If Nehemiah is successful in uh, reestablishing the city of Jerusalem, uh, Tobiah, Sambalot, Geshem, they stand as rulers of opposing uh, cities and, and regions here in the Persian Empire. They stand to actually lose a lot of money. It's actually in their economic advantage or interest to actually discourage the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And so for the past couple of chapters, uh, these, uh, these, these three people, two right here in Nehemiah chapter 6, they've been sending uh, messages of psychological warfare to Nehemiah, to, to the people of, of Jerusalem, to try and discourage them from finishing the work that God had put in front of them. And they've tried all sorts of things, all sorts of threats, all sorts of um, attempts to sort of thwart. They've tried to mock them. They've tried to discourage them. And what they haven't done up until this moment, they haven't actually targeted Nehemiah himself. And this is how you know that they're finally desperate is because they're, they're giving the order to shoot the generals. 
And if their invitation to you sounds weak, that's because I've set it up that way. It's actually really tempting. The the invitation is, come meet with the power brokers in the region who would give you instant credibility and standing on a national stage. Nehemiah, why don't you come over here and politically speaking, increase your own political career. An invitation to this type of, I'll call it the G3 summit, would put Jerusalem back on the map again. He could build his momentum and turn his political success into more power and it would be a really great career move. That's kind of what he's up against. And I want you to hear this. I want you to see this. This is one of the enemy, when I say that in a church, I really mean Satan. One of Satan's strategies for, for taking down and tearing apart and thwarting the work that God puts before his people. He wants to take out the person at the top. He often starts with the work itself, just kind of in the mundane details, but once he gets discouraged and once that proves unfruitful, the saint will often work his way to target the person at the top. We've um, seen this. If the enemy can distract the leader, he can divide the people. Isn't it true? We've watched this in um, politics and in our country, in our society, in our culture, but we've also seen this in our churches, right? The rise and fall of certain leaders has been famous for us to watch and to see how this one tactic proves fruitful time and time and time again. And I don't know about you, but one of the the burdens that I saw back in my life, back in the early 2000s when God was calling me just to my life to to have a God-sized dream for me in my life of just serving him in the church. I, I remember it was actually out, out of a season in our country where pastor after pastor after pastor was having an, a crisis of integrity, where, where the enemy was picking off leaders at the top of churches. And I remember uh, being a 17-year-old kid saying, someone's got to fix this. It's going to be me. This, this is me being a superhero. I know I don't have a cape, I just got a hoodie, but it's, it's going to be me. And actually, um, I'm really grateful for the wisdom that somebody gave me that, that they, they said way back then, um, you can't fix a problem that's taking down thousands of people, but you can be one of many faithful servants in the church who comes alongside others and together build something great. And just, I think as an aside here, Heartland, this is one of the reasons that my heart is so amped up for churches like ours who understand this dynamic of of the enemy trying to take out the leader at the top and why we've pivoted away from having a head pastor, one person at the top, and we've actually reassembled, legally formed our church to be represented by a multiple leader church. Gosh, I really wish more churches in the world would just do this would just establish, in, in some, not a sense of fear, but a sense of faith that God has designed us to be linked arm in arm together, walking alongside of each other, not trying to be isolated heroes by ourselves. I also um, just want to take a moment to say, um, as a church leader, it terrifies me to know that this is the enemy's tactic. And I'm so grateful for the many prayers that you have prayed for the people in positions of leadership here at Heartland. And if you're not already praying for us, can I just ask you and plead with you and invite you? Would you, could you pray for us? Right? Because we've all seen how it looks for people to get into God's work and to have God's dream and to do something monumental with their lives and to to actually get down the road and get to the one yard line. 
to the one yard line is where this temptation hits Nehemiah. On the one yard line of his success, on the one yard line of seeing come to fruition that which God had put in front of him. And at the one yard line, this temptation comes to distract him and take him away from the work that got started here at home to send him somewhere else to meet with other people that wouldn't advance the mission. And how the devil works in those situations and how we just want to be a place of people of faithfulness to God. That's a prayer. You could, you could pray over me and, and, and Brad and Craig and Michelle and Shib and Tom and Steve. Just pray for us. Would you pray for us? Can you, could you pray for us? That was online. Will you pray for us? Just give me one of these in the chat because they ain't giving me nothing here, all right? <laughs> Just pray for us, right? Pray for us. It's a sneaky tactic. And one, actually, that Nehemiah sees through. Look at what he says next. He says, um, they invited me to the plains of Ono, but, but look at this. He says, but they were scheming to harm me. I don't know how he knew this. Uh, historians that I read this week actually said that the plains of Ono was one of the most famous assassination spots for rulers in the ancient world. I don't know how Nehemiah saw it coming, but he saw it coming. And so I sent this message to them with this reply, and, and this is where we got the series title, Monumental, right from these words right here in Nehemiah chapter 6. He says, I am carrying on a great project, and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? He says, I'm carrying on a great project. This work is monumentally important. It's monumentally difficult, and it will leave a monumental impact for generations. Why should I give up the thing that's going to be most important in my life for me to just go have a conference with you? Nehemiah says one of the hardest words that we have to say when God has given us a monumental God-sized dream. The word is this. It's just, no. No, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Here's what I want us to see. I got a couple main uh, reasons that we should say no to the obstacles and the opposition that comes at us when we're building a God-sized dream with our lives. When you're engaged in the mission that God's put in front of you, if we as a church are moving forward with whatever it is that God has put on our heart. And I believe God's going to put some amazing dreams upon our heart. And I want us to be ready in that moment for us to be able to walk into those. But, but here's the thing about the word no, Nehemiah teaches us. The first thing is this, is that no keeps us focused. Can you say that out loud with me? No keeps us focused. Nehemiah says no to them because he knew a monumental dream requires monumental focus. For Nehemiah, his goal wasn't repairing the political situation in Jerusalem, it was to repair a wall. He wasn't a ruler, he was a project manager. I find sometimes my biggest opposition to that which I know is most important in my life doesn't come from someone standing in front of my face ready to fight me. It's not from a very present in-person experience, it's, it's actually often this type of distraction from somebody way over there, way far away, trying to get me to leave what I'm doing and go do that instead. Don't look at me like you all don't have smartphones. <laughs> I lost track this week trying to figure out how many times Instagram told me someone was going live and I should watch. I find this to be a, a true statement in my life that when I have a deadline at work, my phone is going to go berserk. Is that true? I think there's a small way for us to be reminded that the word no keeps us focused. I think you feel this. I think there's a million things that we could say no to and just a couple of things that we really need to say yes to, isn't there? 
I said it a long time ago in this series, but uh, great leaders understand that they have a couple things that they can do and only they can do. And so they do those very few things very, very well. Let me give you a couple examples. Um, here's some two really great leaders from recent history. Uh, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs has this incredible uh, quote on focus. He said this. He said, focus means saying no to the hundred other good ideas. He says, I'm actually as proud of the things that we at Apple haven't done as the things that I have done. Think about that. I'm, I'm just as happy that I didn't do certain things as I am the things that I've done. Innovation is saying no to a thousand things, but you have to pick carefully. Here's another quote from uh, Warren Buffett, who coincidentally, do you guys know this? Warren Buffett once attended Heartland. Yeah, so fellow Heartlander Warren Buffett once said this. <laughs> what? Maybe he watches online. You never know. Warren, if you're watching, could you just put a hi in the chat? We'd love to. We also, you see the giving. Thanks, Warren. Was that too far? Was that a bridge too far? I don't think it was a bridge too far. Wouldn't it be great if Warren Buffett could? Warren, seriously, bro. Seriously. No, here's what Warren Buffett said. He said, uh, the difference between successful people and really successful people is that really successful people say no to almost everything. You see, when God gives you a dream, something that he leads you in, I think that the dream that we're talking about is something that God leads you into that reveals his heart for the poor and the oppressed, the vulnerable, the furthest from home. Maybe the dream that God's given you is something in your family or the relationships that he wants you to build over time. Or, or maybe, maybe your dream is like Nehemiah, something that's gonna benefit the larger city that you live in or the community that you grew up in. When God gives you a dream, it's like he gives us a block of marble and tells us to make a sculpture. Have you ever heard that quote from Michelangelo about how he was so successful and so good at sculpting the David? It's been, I think, a, a wrongly attributed quote, but, but the, the thing goes like this, you know, how do you sculpt the David? And Michelangelo reportedly said, well, it's easy. You just take a hammer and chisel and you chip away everything that isn't David. I think when God gives us a dream, no is the tool that he gives us to chip away all of the things in our life that isn't the dream that he's calling us to do. Our hammer and our chisel is the word, no. I think, Heartland, one of the things that we need to be prepared for in a world that wants us to do everything is that when God gives us a specific dream here as a church, we ought to be people who are ready to say no to a lot of good things that might distract us from the best thing that God's called us to. I wanna say that now before that event happens because in the moment we're gonna have to make decisions. We're gonna have to figure out our way through how to navigate all the million good things that we as a church, as a people of God, could say yes to. But we got to ask the question, what is it, God, that you've called us to? Because nobody else will stay focused on the dream that God's given you except you. In my life, um, I've seen this play out really, really clearly. Somebody this week asked me about my grandparents. And my grandfather, if I can just brag on him for a moment, um, he did something really remarkable in his life. He published 180 books. Not on Amazon, like actual people publish these books. And not, listen, not everybody's read his books. I haven't read all of his books. But millions have read some of his books in multiple languages. And someone asked me, you know, how is he so prolific? How did he go about, you know, writing so much? And, and I, I couldn't help but remember this one moment in my life when I was 15 years old. And I was at, at his house up in Nebraska. He lived in Lincoln. And, and I um, was, was, was just saying hey to him. And we we're just hanging out. And I was trying to make small talk with my grandpa. And I had just read this book that I thought was hilarious. It was The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. 
And uh, I asked him, I said, hey, Grandpa, have you ever read this book by Douglas Adams? And I remember him with all the seriousness in his eyes. He looked at me and he just said this. He goes, I don't have time for fiction. And I was like, well, Grandpa, I don't have time to be boring. So there's that. <laughs> Now, I think decades later, as I reflected over that, I kind of get his point. God had given him a mission in his life. God had given him a vision. God had given him a, a gift that he was to use. And he had a ton of laughs in his life, but his work was focused. And I think now I see his legacy is monumental. No is hard, but no keeps us focused. And that focus has to be persistent. Nehemiah says, if you, if you look right there in, in chapter 6, verse 4, he says, four times they sent me the same message. Why don't you come out to Ono and we can meet together? And each time he said, I gave them the same answer. John Acuff, the current writer today, he said this about, about goals and dreams. He said that goals are quiet, but distractions are loud. And Sambalas seems like a bad boyfriend who, you know, is woken up in the middle of the night, is texting you late at night, just saying this, hey, you up? You know that guy ain't marriage material. <laughs> in fact, I, I wanted to say this. If, if I say that and it triggers the name of somebody that you know, I want you to grab your phone right now and just take it out and just change their name in your phone to Sambalot. So the next time they, sh they hit your phone up, you just see, who, who is this distraction that's calling me? I know that the vision God's given me in my life for the type of family that I want to build is not you. And I would love for you just to, just to send this text in reply, no, I am doing a great work with my life. Why should I hang out with you when I'm building something better? All right, that's really judgy. You don't have to say that. But that's the idea, right? A lot of times we, we get distracted by the things that are loud and persistent right in front of us, but the goals that we have are quiet and silent. We can easily be led astray. So what are we going to do? When opportunity knocks, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to ask ourselves this one question to ourselves. Is this the mission that God's called me to do? And if the answer to that question is yes, then everything else in our life is a no. But if the answer to that question is no, then we got to be able to speak that no and then wait for the yes. We got to tell it, I can't come down. I'm focusing on a great work up here. Well, in the story, Sambalot actually takes the hint and kind of fades away. Although his last attempt, he sends this open letter, this unsealed letter back to Nehemiah. And it's, it's incredible what it says. He, he simply says, well, um, since you're not going to meet with us, I'm just going to tell everybody that you're trying to make yourself a king. And let's say how that goes when uh, King Artaxerxes finds out that he's funding your rebellion against him. And Nehemiah has to slough it off and say, we will not listen to this distraction. We will not give in. But then a couple days later, a couple days later, uh, someone else summons Nehemiah. And it's actually not somebody from far, far away. It's an old, quiet man who lives on the other side of Jerusalem. He's a man who is shut in his home. He's, he's, he's a reputable man, somewhat of a prophet. And he calls for Nehemiah. Nehemiah goes to him. His name is Shemaiah. And uh, he, he, he summons Nehemiah. He comes to his house to hear prophecy. Verse 10 says this. He says, let us meet. This is what Shemaiah says to Nehemiah. Uh, he says, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple 
Let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. Now, that last part is the prophecy. He says, here's what I understand. The oracle tells me this, is that they are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. If you encounter trick-or-treating tonight, someone who tells you they are coming to kill you, by night, they are coming to kill you. Even you today, with all of your intellect and your prowess and your social dynamics, you're going to run back to your house and turn the lights off. Because one of the greatest strategies the enemy can trick us with or tempt us with is fear. If you want to get someone to violate even their own conscience, all you have to do is propose to them a situation that is the most fearful for them. Isn't this politics? This is going to happen if you don't elect me. Isn't this some of parenting? If you don't listen to me, this is going to happen. Fear is a controlling mechanism. And Shemaiah tells him, hey, they're coming to get you. But what you need to know about Nehemiah is that nobody was coming to get him. Shemaiah is trying to trigger fear in Nehemiah's heart. And, and we know this because look at what he says next. Nehemiah says, should a man like me, that's really important, we're going to come back to that in a second, a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? And then again, he says, now for the sixth time in this chapter, he says, no, I will not go. And I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. <laughs> it's all twisted, isn't it? The political world that Nehemiah was living in, it's nothing like ours today. Here's what I want you to see, though. In the midst of his God-sized dream, the, the word... No, gave him perspective. He said, should a man like me run away? Ne Nehemiah knew who he was, knew who he was in that moment. He knew exactly the man like me meant. He said this, men like me don't hide. Why? Because men like me are leaders. I'm the captain of the ship and the captain goes down with the ship. Nehemiah knew that he was put by God in a high position. But, but check this out. He also knew that Nehemiah knew that this about himself. He wasn't the highest position, but he also knew this. He didn't have um, the position that God would have given other people who could go into the temple. He wasn't a priest. God had made him a project manager, not a priest. And so he had a high position, but he also knew he had a low position. Someone like me cannot go into the temple to spare their life. Well, that seems kind of weird if it exists. Why wouldn't you use it as a sanctuary? But... Um, this was actually a privilege that God had given just to priests. While Nehemiah was a governor, God didn't entrust him to be a priest. And so it would have been a blatant sin for Nehemiah to have taken refuge in a place where only priests were allowed to go. Here's the point. Not only does no keep us focused, but no keeps us faithful. Faithful. The times in your life where you have to say no are always opportunities to exercise faith in God. Faith is acting as if you trusted God to do what he said he would do, even though the circumstances don't seem to make any sense. Faith stands on God's promises, even when the odds aren't in your favor. The faith is what makes space in our experiences for God to show up. Sometimes when we say no to situations, we're saying yes to God. 
I remember I was still in college and um, I, I, I was volunteering at this really large church in town, but um, this other church, which was really small, offered me a part-time job. And a friend of mine felt very strongly that I shouldn't leave the large church I was connected to to take a part-time job at a tiny church for the sheer opinion, and I don't say this to trash my friend, this is just what happened. He, he said, such a move would be career suicide. Listen, I was 22. I didn't have a degree, let alone a, a career to kill. But I remember um, when he said those words, they hung on my heart with fear. I, I said, what if he's right? Like, what if I'm making a huge mistake? What if I'd have more success in my own life if I stayed at the big thing with lots of money? And yet I felt, I just, I remember this viscerally. I felt that God was just pulling me. He's saying, no, no, I've got something for you over here. I want you to, to jump in. I don't, don't worry about the size. Don't worry about your influence. I'll take care of that. You just come be faithful to me. So I went and I grew. I saw God use me in ways that I never dreamed he could. And I felt like God had given me a vision for my life, a, a God-sized dream that involved me kind of just taking his word and, and opening it up and helping people see that it's relevant to their lives today. This is kind of the dream that God gave me when I was 17. It was just, Dan, you're going to spend your days in a church, which is one of the worst places to spend it because church people are crazy. But you're going to spend... <laughs> Your days in the church, but, but you're going you're gonna to take my word, you're going to open it so that other people can see that I'm still moving today even though the words are old. And I started to do that in this little church. And to this day, I don't regret the steps of faith that I took saying no to one thing so I could say yes to a greater thing. You know that question in the Bible what does it gain a person to get the world but lose their soul? I think this is the option that was presented to Nehemiah. Why don't you do the wrong thing, Nehemiah, and you can preserve your life. But Nehemiah dug deep into who God made him to be, a leader, an organizer, a team builder, a city renewer. God had brought him this far and God had given him a job. So he said, no, he chose to honor God and walk by faith. And in doing so, he reveals Shemaiah's motivation. Here's verse 11. It says, he'd been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then, check this out. This is so current to us today. Then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. So not only does saying no keep us focused and no keep us faithful, but, but here's the last thing. No keeps us free. Saying the word no to opportunities that come along that would distract us or take away from that which is ultimately the good thing that God has for us in our lives. It is a freeing thing for us to say no. Nehemiah's no, what did it keep him free from? It kept him free from scandal and kept him out of the papers. For some of us, that would be a really, really great thing, right? Just, just thank you, God, that I don't have a scandal where people are reading about me in the papers. He kept his credit. He kept his reputation all because he said no. It reminds me of that Proverbs, Proverbs 22, verse 1, which says, choose a good reputation over great riches. Being held in high esteem is better than silver or gold. Is that true? Nehemiah wasn't free from his enemies. No, they were still out there, you know, spreading slander about him. But he was free from anyone who knew him bringing accusation, free, free from controversy. In the court of public opinion, he was free to lead.
Maybe you've heard the quote, um, watch out for your character and your reputation will take care of itself. Nehemiah's character made him a man of integrity. And people of integrity do what Nehemiah did. They ask the same question many different times. Should a man like me, should a, a woman like me, should a person like me do this thing? It's such a great way, it's such a, such a great character question for, for us to ask ourselves, is this someone who's God given this dream to, is someone like that, do they act like this? So for, for us, as a people like us, do we choose to get distracted from God's purposes? Should people like us choose to hide in sin as opposed to stand firm in faith? Should a people like us cheat a good name for cheap power? And Heartland, the answer to all those questions is no. Why? Because we're doing a monumental work with a monumental reach. And on the other side of Nehemiah's focus and his faithfulness and his freedom, on the other side of his many no's, there is this little bit of surprise. It comes out as it sneaks up on us in verse 15. Just check this out. This is where I want to land us today. It says, so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. And everybody said, what? 52 days. They built a two and a half mile wall. Some of you tried to build a patio. It took you two years. And that's with a bobcat. <laughs> 52 days. Even to this day, it's insane of what Nehemiah accomplished. In less than two months, the entire city was surrounded with security. The people saw the victory of the dream coming to reality. But, but, but here's what I want you to see here in verse 16. Just check this out. It says, when all of our enemies heard about this, when all the people who were outside looking in, trying to psychologically stop us and thwart us, when all of our enemies saw this, they were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized this work had been done with the help of God. When their enemies saw the victory, they were afraid. They acknowledged God. It was Nehemiah's no that turned fear, turned fear around. It was his focus, his faithfulness, and the freedom to say no that put his fear back on his enemies. You know, all of this reminds me, I think, of Jesus. Do you remember that time in Jesus' life where he walked into the wilderness, he was led into the wilderness, and he confronted the great enemy, the devil? Three, three temptations were given him, three great distractions, three opportunities for Jesus to get power, to shortcut the work. And then and the three times Jesus said, no. He said no. He knew the mission that he was on. He, he knew the greater thing that he was doing. He knew the integrity that it would take to, to take away the sins of the world. And so he knew the cost of giving his yes to anything less than his purpose. So he said no. He said no to Satan and he said yes to God and yes to you and me. He said yes all the way to the grave. He said yes to one of the hardest, most selfless works. But how many people know this? It didn't take Jesus 52 days to finish the work that he came to start. How many days did it take him? It took him three, just three days he did the work. Three days he changed the world. Three days the monumental change where his enemies looked at him and turned around and shuddered with fear because he had overcome the greatest enemy in this world, death, 
hell and the devil trembled. And Harlan, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to stand to your feet. Right here, just stand to your feet. Because you and I have a victory in Jesus. Where he said no, we can say no. We can say yes to him. And he will give us the victory. I want us just to walk out today, sing these words. Come on, Harlan.